Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 26th, 2022, one of the most Perennial subjects on Keenan are the complicated, tangled, painful, and often wonderfully beautiful relationship between parents and children, particularly between parents and daughters. Did a great show a couple of weeks ago with the English feminist writer Catherine uh, Angel, appropriately named perhaps, um, on her new book, which came out so appropriately on Father's Day, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy. I think Catherine was suggesting that girls need to separate themselves, disentangle themselves with their fathers. Did a, uh, a an interesting show also that same week with uh, a New York City-based novelist, Alison Fairbrother. She has a new, wonderful new novel out, The Catch, about her entangled relationship with her father. It's fiction, but very much based, I think, on the factual relations between uh, uh, Alison Fairbrother and her father. The relationship between parents and children, of course, is unavoidably complicated. Did a show last week with the sociologist Maureen Perry Jenkins suggesting that children's well-being and happiness often depends on their parents' work, surprise, surprise. Her book, Work Matters, How Parents' Jobs Shape Children's Well-Being. And, of course, children's well-being is bound up in their relationship with their parents. And we're back to the same subject today with the Canadian writer, Leah McLaren, who has an incredibly controversial, very honest new autobiography out, where you end and I begin uh, a memoir. And Leah is joining us from Coburg, Ontario, where she grew up in Canada. Leah, welcome. Hello, how are you? So uh, are you in the business of entanglement or disentanglement in your memoir? <laughs> well, the memoir tells the story of a very, very psychologically enmeshed relationship I had with my mother. So writing it was uh, a process of kind of unpicking it and disentangling myself. I mean, my whole life has been that process in a way. But yeah, so the latter. The funny thing, and there are lots of funny things about, and I use that word carefully because it's not always funny in a ha-ha way, but the funny thing is both you and your mom are writers, and the act of writing is itself both the problem and the solution, isn't it, Leah? It is. It's, I mean, family, you're a writer yourself, so you will know. Writers are not normal people, and families of writers are definitely not like normal families. So, yes, there is, um, there are elements of rivalry, there are elements of, my mother published a memoir years ago. Um, this is my first memoir, but we've both each published, I published two novels, she's published one for a long time, we were employed together just a few desks away from each other at the Globe and Mail, Canada's broadsheet national newspaper. For a while, she was the editor of my column, which I still can't believe. Uh, yeah, so entangled is like, yeah, very entangled careers and, um, and obviously she's my mother, so 
it doesn't get more entangled than that. And women do entanglement. I don't know if they do it better than men, but they do it more intensely, don't they? Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't like to generalize about the sexes, but I would say that, you know, obviously I have sons and when I had sons, I was very relieved in a way. I mean, I, I love women and I'm, I have loads of great girlfriends and I love hanging out with women and probably my closest friendships are mostly women but it was really a relief to have sons because it didn't for me personally it didn't like bring up all the stuff I mean parenting always brings up your own childhood stuff but for me it was easier because I didn't see my either of my sons as little mini me's and there was no which was a real sort of the dynamic between my mother and I my mother I mean what happened there was she um, well, it's very complicated, but after she left my father, she divorced him and left my sister and I. Really, she was what on the What year was that, Leah? So that was, I was born in 75 and I was eight and my sister was six when she left Coburg, the town where I now am on holiday with my family. And she, she was in the process, it took a couple of years, the truth is messy, but essentially she moved to the city and took a job in journalism and prior to that she had been uh, you know, a stay-at-home mom. She got married at 21 to my dad, who was her high school sweetheart. She was this, she did, like, she made her own maple syrup, like, for real. She quilted, she, you know, PTA, all of it. And then her own father died, and she just, something about that just caused her, she said, I just was free. I didn't have to pretend anymore, and she left. And then when I was, I missed her desperately, and it was an agony but i couldn't the thing about kids is if you you think that if a parent abandons a child and i've seen this many many times yeah, I, sorry to jump in leah um you use the word abandon is that literal she just turned her no, back on all of you it was not she did not abandon us it wasn't like the old went out for a pack of fags and never came back at all um but she was in a way and she will fully admit this, and she's written about this too. She needed to escape motherhood, the bonds of love, at, because motherhood is, I would argue, generalizing about the sexes, it is such a, an intense and devouring kind of love. The needs of, it's not just love, your children need you so intensely, especially when they're tiny. And my mother found that almost unbearable. So she left, your mom yeah, sort of quote-unquote abandoned you to realize herself. Um, and then your relationship became, in a way, even more complicated, didn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, because what happens when a child, uh, when a parent leaves a child or a child feels abandoned often is not the logical thing. Because the logical thing would be, like if in a marriage, if someone abandons you, you're like, jerk but or angry but for a child the love uh you have for your parent is like a survival instinct and so uh, my response of course i saw my mother's on on weekends and holidays and i began to just absolutely idolize her i and she also um began to see me as a as a confidant and a friend because she wasn't really able to she used to say to me i would ask her that question who's your favorite and she said oh that's easy it's you because i can't really deal with small children so you'll always be my favorite but uh 
I'm not sure that I was, but I modeled myself after her. And also she, we had a very intellectually close relationship. And from a very young age, like literally age seven, eight, I was reading Marilyn French and Fear of Flying and Doris Lessing. And I saw her as like one of Doris Lessing's free women. And she in fact was having a long standing on off affair with a, uh, effectively married man who would not commit to her that was very torturous to her but she was also this kind of mary tyler moore you know work single girl in the city um sort of trying to climb the greasy pole of journalism so to me i did not resent her in the least for leaving i saw her as she would say part of it was said through her she would say i'm giving you a role model and i just i you know i was a kid i not only did i buy it as a story, and it was a self-serving story for her, I needed to buy it because what I needed was to love her and to find a way to love her. You you wrote a, an interesting piece in The Star um, earlier in the month suggesting that your, and I want to get to this idea of your mother's story as an abuse story, is your story. It doesn't seem as if you can separate your mother's narrative from your own. They're one and the same for better or worse, are they? Yeah, in a way, I mean, enmeshment is, I, I mean, yes, they are in the way that all filial stories flow into each other and stories give birth to other stories. But part of what the book is about is the way stories and secrets work in families. And my mother, when I was, so, and this is sort of the opening scene in the book when I was, 14, I went to a pool party and I did a bunch of drugs and I ended up having a disturbing sexual experience. It wasn't rape, it wasn't, but it was weird and upsetting and had social fallout at school. And I had a sort of, you know, early teen kind of breakdown. I lost a lot of weight. I passed out in choir practice and I finally told my mom. It was a source of great shame. And my mom responded by saying, well, now that you've told me that, I, I guess you're old enough. I have a story to tell you. And she told me that she, from the age of 12 to 15, she had been involved at the time she described it as, she said, I fell in love with her riding instructor, a man who was the pony club instructor at the Caliban Riding and Hunt Club. The whole, You call him the horseman, right? I call him the horseman. I don't name him. Now, my mother has written about this, and she's written her own story. Um, and she names him. But I thought, I discussed it with my husband, who is um, a British journalist, He's the, and he deals with stories like this all the time. And he said, you know, he probably has living family, and, and I don't think you should name him. Like, it's not okay. And I agreed. And I don't think, and the point of my book isn't to unmask this man, who is dead, by the way. But it was more that the story my mother told me became a kind of, it became the sort of answer to everything. It was like the keystone in the arch of our life because the story of what had happened to her, what happened was she became involved with this man. She did what children do when they are, you know, not violently raped, but seduced essentially, and which is rape. <laughs> um, she fell in love with him. She was, it was her first experience of romantic love, which is incredibly damaging. Any, many, many kids have gone through this, and but it, it's not even 
what he did to her body is almost, which was violence and rape, but is almost incidental compared to the profound abuse of teaching a little girl that this is love. And then she has to spend the rest of her life understanding that her first experience of what she thought was love was in fact a violation and a crime. And she then, so she, her father discovered the, um, the abuse, the affair, or very early on. I should add this man was in his mid forties, married and had four children, two of whom were older than my mother. My grandfather discovered it. He, he was the, on the board of a hunt club. He banished the man and his family from the, from the area, from the county, um, thinking it was all fine, but it was a bit of a priest scenario in that he just, you know, he just carried on. He went and picked her up after school in his pickup truck, he moved like five miles down the road. And so she carried on secretly. And that is her great shame that, that my grandfather didn't know about that and that she carried that with her. And eventually she broke it off with him because well, she- Was this, um, I mean, you're a mom now. I know it's a hard question to answer, but did she do the right thing? Um, because as you argue in the book, and this is the core of the book, she essentially passed down her trauma to you and made it impossible really uh, to separate yourself. So the title of your book, Where You End and I Begin, there is no end and no beginning. You're one and the same person. Did did she do this knowingly, consciously? No, I don't. No, absolutely not. She, my mother, uh, it was the way the story became the answer to everything because she then broke up with this man. She met my father, who was the captain of the hockey team, you know, handsome boy from the wrong side of the tracks. Everyone loved him. She married him very young at 21, had kids very young. And then when my grandfather died, that was why she left because she felt in her version of her narrative, everything she had done in her life after that moment of abuse was explained by this sort of kernel of trauma. And so for me, hearing this story, not just hearing it after I just told her a you know, less dramatic trauma of my own, my first reaction was relief. My second reaction, well, has been uh, it was just this realization that it felt like my entire life, my existence. He's not, the horseman is not my father, but he's why I am here, essentially. Like she wouldn't have, she, because my mother also has written extensively about uh, how she regrets motherhood and feels very ambivalent about it. And she was always very open about that with, um, with me, her eldest daughter. And uh, so the horseman narrative, you know, and this is the heart of what the book is about. I think that terrible things happen to people, trauma occurs, but when we live in a culture where victim narratives become currency, they can be used as narratives of convenience. And I think ultimately my mother used this trauma, what had happened to her, as a way of not being accountable as a mother. Now, on the other hand, I think she was incredibly damaged by it. And that affected her ability to love um, as, a, as a mother, as a parent, to nurture. And she was very open about this. She used to say, my parenting philosophy is benign neglect. She literally, our family motto 
was, and we thought it was hilarious, and it was hilarious, but it was also true, was a printout on the fridge that said, commitment sucks the life right out of you. And uh, I mean, I laugh about it because it, it was funny at the time, and it still is funny, but it was also true. She was the ultimate then unhelicopter parent. Uh, <laughs> what about your father? Uh, did you tell him these stories? Did he know what was happening? Well, you know, I actually, when I started writing the book, because the book became, uh, it grew out of a collaboration with my mom. My mom and I are always trying to collaborate as writers, but as you know, as a writer, uh, you know, most writers don't, like it's not really a collaborative <laughs> profession uh, in terms of when you write books. And then especially, we had uh, especially uh, autobiographies. No, I know, I know. So it became a totally different kind of book. And when I started writing it, I, I had, you know, my dad, I knew that he, he, my mother told him when she was in her teens, when they started dating about it, I knew he was aware of it. And I actually brought it up with him and my stepmother, who he's been married to for 30 years now. And, and he said, mm -mm. my dad is, you know, he's quite a self-contained man, very steady, very stable, very conventional in terms of the kind of father he is. And my stepmother said, what, what? And I realized, and I said, dad, like you've never, you never told her. And, and he said, well, and so he sort of told her in front of me and, and she was appalled and sort of shaken. And he said, well, I just didn't think it had anything to do with me. You know, it was your mother's story. And also the thing about my dad is he's very, He's Canadian and he's conventional and he, in the best sense of that word, and he just felt it wasn't his story to tell. But the way I experienced the story was very different because I had been, I am a writer and I had been thinking about it. My mother and I discussed it at length and it also became this sort of explanation and solution to everything. Yeah, it's a weird thing where on the one hand, it's this privileged intimacy. And on the other hand, it's a form of imprisonment. And it's been a kind of imprisonment that you've experienced your whole life. Yeah, yeah, in a way. And I think and I think the reason why the book is resonating in a way, because I thought it was such a weird book and kind of con and I felt huge shame about writing about my mother's story. She actually accused me in print. She wrote a piece for the literary review of Canvas, very well written. My mother's an excellent writer. And just saying, telling the story in detail, and then also saying that the title of the piece was This Story is Mine. And at the end of the piece, she says, you know, my daughter's writing this book and I feel violated. I feel she is appropriating my story as material for her memoir. And I just want the world to know this is my story. And that, um, that, was, that was tricky for me because it was, uh, a year and a half before my book came out, almost two years. How did she so get a hold of it? Contract. Did you show it to her? Did you she, show the draft? She, well, no, I I was always open with my mother from the beginning. And then the book right. tells its story. She, we, I took went to New York with her for the weekend to tell her I'd signed the book contract and she gave me my bless, her blessing. And then she later revoked it, um, which is her choice. You know, you can change your mind. and. Then she asked me to send her a copy of the proposal, the full proposal, which as you know, as a nonfiction writer, that's a large document. 
And often the book doesn't turn out, in this case, it turned out not very, it was very different than the proposal, but you know, on similar themes. And I sent it to her and I said, you know, this is for your eyes only and the book will be very different. And, and she sent it to my, her entire family. All of, she's from family of five and they're very close and cousins and she sent it around and one, this was during the first lockdown and I just received call after call from my aunts, my uncles, just say, forbidding me to write it. And there was a lot of anger. And I, two, one of my aunts and one of my uncles are also writers and they write books. And I, and I just sort of said to them, well, like, no, <laughs> I mean, I, as a career journalist, when someone tells me not to write something, it really doesn't, it's, it's like a form of reverse psychology. But also I'd signed a contract and I'd taken an advance and it was my job at that point. So it's been a really, and I was very betrayed that mom would promise to keep that to herself. Because as you know, proposals are, you know, you don't send them around. They're for your agent and publishers yeah. to read. To so be clear, um, let, let's be clear, your mother is, and, and some of some of our audience will know her, especially on Lit Harbor, Cecily Ross. Um, she describes herself, and again, this adds to the weird complexity of this on her Twitter page, as a wannabe novelist no more. She's the author of The Lost Diaries of Susanna Moody. You made your name as a novelist. Um, your Two earlier books are both very successful novels, A Better Man and The Continuity Girl. How did the success of your career as a novelist, how did that impact on your relationship? Uh, well, my mom, you know, she was very, so my mom really, she forged, a, uh, she forged the way for me. I got to grow up and watch her working her way up in the Canadian world of Canadian journalism, which she was, she was not born into, she didn't, my uncle worked at, in newspapers, but really she wasn't from a journalistic family. And then when I graduated, you know, it, I, I definitely, it wasn't like a case of, she didn't hire me, but I, but I very quickly, I became a writer and she was an editor and a frustrated writer as so many very good editors who are also good writers are. And I became a columnist and feature writer. So, you know, by the time I was 25, I was out earning her at the same paper. But we were still very close. And for me, I didn't, because I was like, I just see myself as her daughter. And I think what children assume, even adult children, is that your parent is going to take pleasure in, in your success. And she, in many ways, did seem to. But then there would be, you know, but then she would do things like publish six page articles in Chatelaine, which is like the red book of Canada on why she regretted being a mother with pictures of me. And I'd get a call from a producer at a TV show saying, do you want to come on with your mom and talk about the, this crazy article she'd written? And I would say, what article? So she would do, there were, there were elements, you're British, so you understand. It was like a literary ambush thing going on. And I was very, I made, I was very, very, it was important to me with this book, even when it became a bone of contention, to be very honest with her and open. And she did read uh, the draft right before it went to copy editing. And she had one change. But then she became very angry and hasn't spoken to me since. 
So it's very, our relationship, like any complicated relationship, uh, a filial relationship, it's ongoing. It's a negotiation. I love her. I'll always love her. Like I'll never, her voice is in my head, but it definitely, the competition thing is probably the most painful to me because it just feels so wrong. And I've never seen myself as in competition with her. I just idolized her and modeled myself after her. But she, you know, and then she, I want, there was a profile of me when my first novel came out and the, inter, the profiler reporter called her for a quote and she said, well, what can I say? She's eclipsed me. I remember that was the quote and I just thought, who says that? Like, it's not a competition it, in my mind, but obviously wannabe novelists no more. It's, yeah, it's a bit odd. It's a bit odd, but you know, you're right. And it's ironic that the, the novels didn't wreck the relationship, but the true story did. Well, yeah, ironic or fitting. And how's um, your sister? I mean, you have a sister as well. How, how, how is she dealing with all this? She's like, she's a senior bureaucrat at Health Canada and she's uh, like terrifyingly sane. And we, we get along, I just saw her, but she, we pretend that I haven't written this book. She was here last weekend with her kids and we hung out and we just didn't talk about it. <laughs> and basically that's kind of how it is with my dad and my stepmother. We talk about it, we're a bit more open, but it's like, you have to understand, I'm a small town Canadian wasp like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and English people just have nothing on Canadian wasps when it comes to not talking about our feelings. Like we are so good at it. It's amazing. But obviously I do. Um, but it's almost like a kind of uh, cognitive dissonance when it comes to my family. My, my sister is just, she, she loves me. I love her, but it, she thinks I'm insane. She's like, you don't even get a pension from this. Why? They don't, I mean, well, uh, My sense, and uh, Leah, please correct me if I'm wrong, is, is you, for better or worse, you had to write this book. This yeah, was not I, something that gave you a great deal of joy. I mean, you just had to get it out of you. That, that is, uh, yeah, that's exactly what it was like. I, until I wrote this book, you know, I had written two others and I was a career writer. But and I would hear writers talk about the book wrote itself, or I just couldn't not write it. And I always, frankly, thought that was a lot of wanky bollocks. I just thought, oh come on, what fucking book writes itself? And uh, but then it happened to me. It felt like I remember saying to my agent once, it felt like I was driving backwards in the dark the whole time. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. What about as a writer, um, you have a Substack, you're editor, what, what's your sense of the current state? How, how valuable do you find Substack as a way of getting your work out? What's your... Substack, are you on Substack? Uh, everyone's on Substack. Yeah, yeah, everyone is. Yeah, so Substack actually recruited me and they are, you know, they've just, they have a ton of investment. You've read the Vanity Fair article, but Hamish, the founder who is Canadian. Yeah, Hamish, I know, because he used to work at TechCrunch. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he actually called me up. I got fired very publicly for a column, uh, a column I'd written for 17 years for the Globe and Mail. And it was like a thing in the Canadian media. And it was, you know, it's always fun to get very publicly and humiliatingly fired. 
And uh, he called me up and he said, and this was like in 2016, they just started the company. And he said, you've got to come on Substack. I've started this thing, email newsletters. And I remember I talked it over with my husband. I was like, what? I don't know if this is a go or like email. We were, and I just, I said to him, like, I just don't want to write a column for a while. I think it's, I'm going to take a moment, maybe write a book. And then, you know, he kept coming back. And then finally, I went, I, their recruiter, now he has a whole division in Toronto and a whole recruitment arm. And I talked to this woman, Linda, in Toronto, and she said, look, we'll hook you up with design assets. We'll, we have IT support. We have lawyers. I was like, okay, but do you have insurance? <laughs> but anyway, they, and I find it very exciting and very, uh, I have never had a blog. I don't even I've, you know, I'm in promotion mode, so I'm doing all this social media, but I am an alert soft, like, I, I don't do that stuff. Generally, I try to, as you know, as a writer, you just, if you open, it's such a time suck. And it also torques your ability to understand the world as a journalist. And I had spent years and years inuring myself to that stuff. And suddenly, with Substack, it doesn't feel so frightening anymore and it's more I, yeah it's more intimate and yeah uh, your, ma your mom, um, right? yeah your, your mom um apparently feared a, a mummy treatment uh, a mummy dearest treatment of course everyone knows the mummy dearest uh movie uh from 1981 is this gonna be this feels like a movie for better or worse leah have, have you sold the rights who's gonna play who <laughs> I don't know. I can't really. It's so close to the bone for me. I don't. I can't really see Would it. Would you be okay with selling the movie rights? Then? No, but I was joking too. So a friend of mine used to work on the Gilmore Girls, uh, Daniel Goldfarb. He's brilliant. You should have him on the show. He wrote Julia on HBO Max, the Julia Child show. Oh, I love to. Introduce yeah, me. I will. On. We went to high school together. We went to theater school. And, uh, and he sent me a note congratulating me on the book. And I said, hey, maybe you should turn it into a TV show about a mother and a daughter, a single mother and a daughter who have lattes and like overshare their feelings. And basically the Gilmore Girls, they've made that show. But it was, but heartwarming, the heartwarming version. If you've well, ever let's, watched let's, the Gilmore let's Girls. End positively. I mean, there's a great deal of pain here, but there's also fixes. We've done a number of shows on what makes good mothers, raising self-reliant teenage girls. You're a parent. Problems with over-parenting, uh, whether or not we should raise ch children as parents with data with Emily Oster. What, what have you learned from your mom positively about bringing children up? What are the, the positive lessons from this book? Where you end and I begin for parents in particular. For parents, I mean, my mother. My mother was not. My mother. My mother loved me in the in the the only way she could, and I really just. I do believe there are two kinds of kids. I had a very complicated childhood, but I was not unloved. And there are two kinds of kids. There are children who feel loved and children who don't. And even though our relationship was complicated and damaging in some ways, it was. It filled me with confidence, intellectual confidence, and it made me who I am today. And I honestly would not change anything about it because I am who I am because of her. And I like who I am. Yeah, I, I'm guessing, Leah, for what it's worth, not that I know you, I certainly don't know your mom, but um, 
I'm guessing this one's going to end well. Eventually, you'll start talking again. Well, uh, congratulations, though, on the book. It's an important book, certainly for you, and I think it's going to be a major hit. Where you begin, uh, where you end, and I begin by Leah McLaren, a memoir. It's just out. Congratulations. A hard, so very much. hard book. All books, as all writers know, are hard to write. This one is doubly hard. What else are you reading these days, Leah? Maybe to keep your oh, mute, yeah. cheer you up. Well, I have two books, both um, novels, because I, I've been reading a lot of fiction. Uh, I do read nonfiction, but I tend to listen to it. And, and, uh, but so, and writing this book just made me want to live in fictional worlds. And the first one is Meg Mason's Sorrow and Bliss. It was on the mm. shortlist for this year's Women's, Women's Prize. It's hilarious, British, dark, so dark. Um, and comically dark but it's also incredibly acute in the way it looks at mental health and mental illness in a really funny not pathological kind of a way and the other one it's, it's sim on similar themes but could not be a more different book is Susanna Clark's Piranesi which won mm -hmm. the women's prize I think about three years ago which is almost it's one of those books it, it's described as fantasy uh, science fiction, but it's not, that almost doesn't do it justice, because I don't read fantasy and science fiction. It's a completely self-contained universe. It's, it's a labyrinth. It's a perfect, almost a perfect novel, I would say. So those are my two 